Welcome to the 217th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. Today is a discussion of maternity care in the pandemic with Zaneda Marie Thayer. Just a quick programming note, this is the first COVID calls coming from South Korea. I am recording this today from Daejeon, South Korea, where it is 7 a.m. Thursday, and where I started my new job at KAIST on Tuesday. This is the second day of my quarantine here, and I will spend some time talking over the next few days about what that experience has been like going from the United States to South Korea in the middle of a pandemic. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Also, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 10th, 2021, there are 2,348,877 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 470,200 deaths reported in the United States. There are 1,486 deaths reported in South Korea. As of today, there are 9.8 million Americans who have been fully vaccinated in the United States from COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that. Now, the headline is 18 days after giving birth, woman dies from COVID-19. This was written by Maria Kramer and published in the New York Times, December 8th, 2020. Erica Becerra was 18 months pregnant when she learned she had tested positive for the coronavirus. Almost immediately after she got the result, her body began aching, she developed a fever, and she felt tightness in her chest. When she began having trouble breathing, her husband called for an ambulance. Three days later, on November 15th, she gave birth in a Detroit hospital to a healthy boy, Diego. She never got to hold him, her brother told KCBS-TV in Los Angeles. Ms. Becerra's health declined so rapidly that doctors put her on a ventilator, which she remained on for 18 days. Ms. Becerra, 33, who had no known health problems before she became ill, died surrounded by her parents and brother who had rushed from East Los Angeles, according to her godmother, Claudia Garcia. It was a complete shock. She was fine, Ms. Garcia said. I'm speechless. I'm still trying to wake up from this nightmare. Last month, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention added pregnancy to the list of conditions that put people with COVID-19 at increased risk of developing severe illness, including a heightened risk of death. The agency added pregnancy to the list after a study that examined the health outcomes of 409,462 symptomatic women ages 15 to 44 who tested positive for the coronavirus, 23,434 of whom were pregnant. The study found that pregnant women faced a 70% increased risk of death compared with non-pregnant women who were symptomatic. Pregnant women also were significantly more likely to require intensive care, to be connected to a specialized heart-lung bypass machine, and to require mechanical ventilation than non-pregnant women. Erica and Diego Becerra with their daughter, Erica. When you think about a growing uterus pressing on the diaphragm and lifting it upward in general, it's harder to breathe when you're pregnant, said Dr. Cynthia Giamfi-Bannerman, an obstetrician at New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Adding a respiratory disease just makes it more challenging. Dr. Giamfi-Bannerman said Ms. Becerra's death was a reminder of the importance for pregnant women to maintain social distance, wear masks, and minimize time outside their homes. But, she said, doctors still needed more data to get a better sense of the risks for pregnant women who contract the virus. The absolute risk of death for pregnant women who contracted the coronavirus was still lower than for women who 
contracted the H1N1 virus during pregnancy, according to the CDC study. A November 19 study, which was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open, also found that 95% of pregnant women who tested positive for the coronavirus had no adverse, out adverse outcomes. The vast majority of pregnant women with COVID do very well, Dr. Giampi Bannerman said. Ms. Garcia said the family did not know how Ms. Bakira contracted the virus. Relatives speculated that she must have become infected in early November during her many visits to the doctor late in the pregnancy when she began experiencing mild contractions. She learned she was infected with the virus on November 7th. Ms. Bakira's husband, Diego, a landscaper, has been taking care of his infant son and the couple's one-year-old daughter, Erica. All three have tested negative for COVID-19, Ms. Garcia said. Ms. Garcia said her goddaughter was ecstatic when she learned she was having a boy. She was so excited, Ms. Garcia said. She would say, I'm going to have my boy, and I'm going to have my girl, and they're going to grow up together. Okay, I'd like to start the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest. Dr. Zaneda Marie Thayer is an assistant professor of anthropology at Dartmouth College. She earned her PhD at Northwestern University and is the 2020 recipient of the Michael A. Little Early Career Award from the Human Biology Association. Her research addresses how early life environments, including those experienced during pregnancy, affect health. In April 2020, she launched the COVID-19 and Reproductive Effects Study, known as the CARE Study, to understand the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on stress and maternity care experiences among pregnant persons living in the United States. Zaneda Thayer, thanks so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is just to find out where you're calling in from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. So I'm calling in from the guest bedroom in my home in Norwich, Vermont. Um, so in Vermont, you know, we've done pretty well across the pandemic in terms of having relatively low case numbers compared to a lot of the country, but uh, hasn't been without sacrifice. So we aren't allowed to leave the state or you have to quarantine. We haven't, we aren't allowed to see any other families. Um, so it's done pretty well here, but not without, you know, sacrifices. What about campus or what's happening on campus right now? So campus, we brought about half of our students back. Um, so they're on campus, but faculty have the option of teaching on campus or remotely and most opt to teach remotely. So I'm teaching this term um, remote, um, but I can go to my office if I want to. So I'd like to start by just finding a, a little bit about um, this study you've been doing. I know it's it, it covers so many different aspects of maternal care and, um, you know, life course um, for children whose uh, mothers endure stress during the pregnancy. Maybe we can just start with kind of a general question about just how you even think about the impact of the pandemic on maternal care, like just the, the broadest strokes of it. Yeah. So, you know, in your introduction, you did a, lot, a really good job speaking to the background in terms of what we're learning about how infection with COVID actually impacts maternal health and potentially offspring health. But as a researcher who's really interested in understanding the impacts of stress, I'm quite interested in trying to understand how stress associated with the pandemic beyond, you know, actual contraction of the virus can be impacting people. And if we think about it, everyone's being impacted by the pandemic in that way. And we think about maternity care in particular, you know, this is a time period when people really need a lot of emotional support through pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum. And so what we've observed in the pandemic is a huge disruption to systems of support and a huge increase in uncertainty. Um, so as an example, people aren't allowed to have support persons in prenatal appointments. Um, you know, they have to go to the ultrasound appointment by themselves, for example. There's been a, a cancellation of these kinds of rites of passage, things like um, child uh, birthing showers and things like this. Uh, there are lots of stories in last April and March about people having to give birth alone. So um, support persons who test positive for COVID aren't allowed to accompany them. You know, maybe they were planning on having a doula. Now the doula can't come because they're only allowed to have one support person. There was concerns and recommendations even that if um, parents test positive for COVID, that their uh, infant should be separated from them. 
for two weeks, which is obviously severely traumatic. And then after people come home with their babies, normally you have these systems of support of friends and family bringing food and helping to watch, you know, the baby or other kids. And we don't have that either. Um, so there's been huge disruptions um, for people across this whole stage. I was uh, looking at one of the um, papers that you had written in which you were laying out some of the, the questions that you're addressing in the CARE study. And I just want to read a couple sentences from it. I think it's really, really striking. You write, given that most studies to date have been small and focused on immediate health outcomes, additional work is needed to understand how the pandemic may shape maternal and infant health. Aside from the direct effects of the virus itself, you wrote a biocultural perspective will be especially important as pandemic-related economic and social changes will shape prenatal and early life experiences. Can you say a little bit more about um, what a biocultural approach is? I think you were already, some of the questions you were just addressing kind of hinted at it, but can you say a little more directly what that means? Sure. So I'm a biological anthropologist, and within that, my specialty is human biology. And so many of us within this field adopt this biocultural perspective. And the idea is that we can't look at biology and culture as independent of one another. Um, our culture impacts our biology and our biology impacts our culture. So in this instance, we're really interested in how the cultural experience of COVID-19 is impacting maternal and child biology. And this can happen through, um, you know, physiological pathways that we actually are pretty well defined. So thinking a little bit about the experience of uh, pregnant mothers, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the, the, um, the stress of the COVID-19 period, uh, telehealth, uh, harder to get um, maybe what people would consider their normal, what they were expecting to get in terms of medical care or having it delivered in that way. Any aspects there that have been increasing stress for pregnant women that you want to tell us a little bit more about? Yeah, so one of our analyses actually that we worked on was looking at patient provider communication. So obviously it's really important for people to be able to feel like they can communicate with their provider and the providers telling them information about um, their care. And so one of the striking things we found was that early in the pandemic, um, folks who were poorer and lower income were more likely to say that their provider had not shared information with them about how the pandemic was going to impact their labor and delivery experience. Um, and then what's more, those individuals were also more likely to have lower satisfaction with their providers. In terms of telehealth, individuals who had received care via telehealth also said they were less likely to receive information about how the pandemic would affect their care from providers and also had lower satisfaction with their providers. Um, so, you know, there was this really rapid shift to telehealth, um, but it's, you know, not potentially without its costs as well in terms of ability to build rapport and communicate. Well, from the physician side, I mean, it seems incredibly difficult because I know, you know, I have two children. I've been, you know, sort of been through this experience from the, the father's point of view and just seeing how important that communication is from very early on. And uncertainty, everybody knows there's uncertainty, but you try to reduce, reduce uncertainty as much as possible by asking and answering good questions. How have physicians sort of coped with that inability to say maybe exactly what the situation in the hospital is going to be? It'd be very hard to know nine months out. I mean, this pandemic has been through so many phases. A nine-month period is a lifetime of COVID-19. Yeah, so we didn't actually interview physicians in our study, so I can't speak to what they said specifically, but that's why, you know, our question is specifically about perceived communication, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe mm -hmm. those providers are actually objectively sharing information, but it's not actually being received and processed and understood by the patients. Um, which is, you know, the end goal of the communication. Uh, but another thing that came up in our study was how, especially in April when we launched this, was a lot of uncertainty among participants about how these hospital protocols were going to be affected by COVID. And since there was no national strategy in terms of how we would respond to this, every hospital had its own regulations. Um, and so, what this meant was that you could live in a city and maybe you picked your hospital based on where you gave birth last time, where you had a friend give birth. But now all of a sudden, you know, whether you went to hospital A versus hospital B could mean that your birth experience is going to be drastically different because in hospital A, they're requiring masks. They're only allowing one support person. Um, you know, if you after you give birth, your partner is not allowed to leave the hospital because once they do, they can't come back. All sorts of different regulations. Um, and people, and these were constantly changing, 
and people didn't feel like they had a good handle on what the actual regulations were. And that was causing a lot of uncertainty and stress. So onto the, the cultural side of coping with that, that stress, I mean, there's an almost unlimited, you know, set of groupings that people rely upon, you know, um, siblings, parents, extended friend networks. Um, that must have been disrupted as well. I mean, if you're talking particularly early in April and May, when, which people were really locked down, they would have been relying entirely on distant communication. Yeah, and so another analysis we've been working on has been looking at um, the postpartum period specifically when a lot of these systems of support are particularly important. Mm -hmm. And so we've found that individuals who say that they've gotten less help with housework or caring for their newborn in that postpartum period um, were more likely to have higher depression than those who said that they were still able to get that support during the pandemic. In addition, we also looked at childcare disruptions because if you have older kids and now they're not at school or in, in daycare, now they're home and you're having to care for them and a newborn and not getting help from anyone else. And so those childcare disruptions were also associated with more uh, depression as well. What about the physical side of things, the kind of um, impacts you've seen in, in terms of you know, that obituary I read um, was indicating that, um, you know, I think if you sort of look behind that a little bit, loss of access to um, exercise, um, increased stress, which not only has psychological effects, but has physical effects as well. What are you seeing in that regard? Yeah, so we looked at exercise and pregnancy because exercise, of course, is a really helpful coping mechanism for stress. Um, but and we and we found that individuals who said that their exercise had been disrupted during the pandemic um, had higher depression and pregnancy as well. What was interesting about that analysis was that um, our participants come from all 50 states all over the US. And so we were able to do an analysis looking at um, individuals who lived in urban versus rural areas. And so we found that individuals who were in rural and urban areas were more likely to say that their exercise had been impacted by the pandemic. And when we looked closer at the data and seeing that those individuals were more likely to be going to gyms that were now closed, right? Or they were didn't feel safe walking or running on the sidewalk because of all the people and crowding. Whereas people in rural areas, perhaps they have, you know, larger homes or more outdoor space where they can exercise safely. Um, so that was just another interesting component that came out. So let's talk about children a little bit. Then what are some of the ways you think about, you know, these impacts on pregnant mothers then also manifest themselves as impacts on children? So one of the big things we think about when we're talking about maternal stress and pregnancy are impacts on the developing baby. So we know that maternal stress hormones, things like cortisol, um, can actually cross the placenta and influence fetal development. And this has a range of different sorts of outcomes. We think can, it can affect things like birth weight, um, gestation length, so increasing your risk potentially for having a preterm baby. In the longer term, it can increase risk for metabolic or immune disease and some psychiatric conditions in children as well. And so there's a big literature in general, maternal stress, looking at all of these different sorts of outcomes. Now, obviously, the pandemic hasn't quite been going on long enough to understand all of these long-term outcomes. But I was actually just working on an analysis today looking at um, fear of childbirth in our sample, which is something that happens independent of COVID, but which in our sample is very clearly exacerbated by COVID-related worries. So as an example, um, individuals who are really concerned about catching COVID and the impacts that would have on their uh, developing baby, right? Or that if they caught COVID, that their baby would have long-term health effects, or that if they caught COVID, their baby would be taken away from them at birth. All of these individuals had a higher fear of childbirth score, where basically we give people a, a dial from zero to 100 and we say, how calm or scared are you <laughs> about your upcoming birth? And so um, in, that in the analysis I was running today, I was finding associations between fear of childbirth and earlier, um, earlier births, so shorter gestation length, as well as lower birth weight. Um, so that's the first, uh, within our sample anyways, of those sorts of studies that I've seen. And I haven't seen any other published studies yet looking at these stressors in pregnancy in relation to birth outcomes. Um, but I imagine those will start coming in the coming months. But it's your sense that this this measure you're outlining, this fear of childbirth metric, it's been increased since during the, the COVID period. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a control, like we don't have the same sample without the pandemic. 
um, and our sample's not nationally representative, so I can't compare it to a non-pandemic time as such. But, um, you know, qualitatively in terms of our participant responses, as well as looking at the association with COVID-specific variables, um, I think it's an appropriate interpretation that fear of childbirth has certainly been exacerbated during the pandemic because of all the reasons we've been talking about. People yeah. are even more afraid than ever of having their babies be separated or not having support people in labor, um, having their pain management strategies and labor being affected. So those are all things people normally are afraid of, but now they're amped up even higher. How much does financial precarity factor into that? The way you think, again, sort of pre-COVID, I know you said you didn't do a study quite like this before that, but I'm always curious, you know, these things that don't seem to get counted into stress or it just all gets lumped together. But it's so obvious right now that this is a pandemic with with health implications, but for many, many Americans and people around the world with severe economic implications as well. That must be adding to stress. Yeah. So, you know, in general, non-pandemic times, we would certainly expect to see that financial stress would be associated with more stress in pregnancy and these sorts of adverse developmental outcomes for children that I've been outlining. Within our own sample, we did actually ask a question about whether um, the individuals are stressed about their financial situation because of the COVID pandemic. And we also found that that variable was significantly associated with higher depression as well, um, indicating some potential effect um, of that financial stress. What was interesting about that finding was that it was independent of household income. So even individuals who mm. had a higher household yeah. income, if they reported financial stress because of the pandemic, they had higher depression as well. When you um, are looking at these populations of, of pregnant women, are you also breaking it down by age categories, uh, geography, race? You know, we've seen this pandemic. Um, it's impossible to describe it as a national phenomenon because mm -hmm. it impacts different populations, um, really radically different in some cases, I think. Yeah, so you know our samples over two thousand uh, people, which is um, great. Um, we but we don't have as much socioeconomic and particularly racial ethnic diversity as we want, which uh, seems to be consistent with a lot of other surveys that were launched in the spring. Because who has time to fill out these surveys? <laughs> you know, we have a huge bias towards educated white women, um, but we do have some socioeconomic diversity and we do have some minority participants, um, but not as much particularly the latter, to be able to really, you know, untangle and actually show what we know broadly that, you know, racialized minorities are, are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. Um, so we have been able to talk more about um, income, lower income and education in relation to different outcomes. And so we have been focusing on that. Just want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID Calls, and today we're talking about COVID-19 and maternal health with Zaneda Thayer. Um, we were talking, just getting into a little discussion of the impact on children. And I wonder if I could ask you, um, I'm not a biologist here, so I have to be careful because I, I won't ask the question the right way. So just to tell you what's on my mind, which is how, what kind of evidence do you actually have or what do you rely on to actually draw that causality between stress of a mother and long-term health impact of a child? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in humans, we rely primarily on observational studies because it is unethical <laughs> to um, experimentally expose people to stress in pregnancy, right? Um, so we rely on observational studies, such as this COVID study I'm describing now. It's an observational study. So people are out in the world. Some of them are experiencing more stress during COVID than others. And then we're interested in seeing how that natural variation in stress experience relates to outcomes in maternal and child health. Um, but there are also people use, I guess, quasi-natural ex experiments. Maybe the COVID actually would be an example of that um, because it's a little bit of an unusual situation. But it, you know, natural, experience, natural experiments would be particularly useful if you have a group of people before or after, right? The, the incident or big natural disaster. Um, or maybe two closely related populations, one of whom experiences it and the other doesn't. 
But then all of this um, observational research is supported by animal model research, where people actually can do experiments. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, we have a lot of experimental research in animals showing these sorts of associations, um, showing that prenatal stress leads to changes in offspring stress hormones and changes in uh, metabolism or immune function that's consistent with our observational studies in humans. And so that gives us more confidence that the associations we're finding are meaningful. There's so much to think about there. I mean, just the first part of what you described, even just the study design and a, a person who works on on stress research as as you do, nobody would choose this period of time. And yet it's affording a sort of body of data that I can't imagine we've had access to for a long, long time. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, some people have drawn parallels to the 1918 flu epidemic, for example. And there are some cohort studies that have come out of that that have investigated these hypotheses, trying to understand how prenatal exposure to that epidemic related to or pandemic relates to offspring health and, and socioeconomic success in later life. Um, but, you know, when you're looking at those studies, we don't necessarily, we don't know if prenatal exposure, if individuals were actually exposed to COVID or not, or sorry, exposed to the flu or not. Mm -hmm. There's lots of issues with those sorts of designs. So yes, I mean, long story short, the fact that this study is, or that this pandemic is happening now means that people are doing a lot of research. <laughs> and I know there's a whole, been a whole proliferation of COVID related studies, even many other studies looking at COVID and pregnancy as well. So the, and then the research, it, as I think about it, then is going to go both directions. I mean, we're going to be looking for historical parallels to to draw comparatives. But am I right that this is also going to launch um, a body of research which is going to go forward? I, I mean, there are going to be COVID babies who are going to be studied um, as a population group for the rest of their lives? Absolutely. I mean, you know, with our own cohort now, we have the potential to follow this cohort of children as they grow and develop, you know, um, which is and certainly an opportunity I had not anticipated a year ago this time. Um, and so we're, we've done two rounds of data collection so far, one during pregnancy and one about one month postnatal. And we're actually gearing up for a third um, data collection wave with questionnaires again. And then we're also going to be um, launching a data collection wave to collect hair from our participants, mm -hmm. um, from the mothers and their babies, uh, to look at cortisol stress hormone levels in hair. Just uh, asking you to speculate a little bit here, but based on any research that, that may already be out there, what kinds of impacts might we be looking at for the life course of children? I know you mentioned the 1918, maybe World War II was a period of time. Um, I know in other countries, particularly in Europe and also in Japan, they've done you know long-term studies of children, for example, who um, grew up in the immediacy of war. What would spell out for a little bit for us a little bit of what you might be looking for there. Are they behavioral kinds of issues? Are they um, uh, addiction, suicide, or, or is it really more um, even sort of structural, the way the body will develop? So I would say there's certainly evidence for um, behavioral, psychological sort of outcomes of outcomes like such as anxiety, for example, you know, altered stress response. Definitely a lot of research suggesting potential cardiovascular health sort of effects. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that, you know, when we look at those big cohort studies, there is there are modest associations that come out. Right. Um, and I think that one thing that I do think is important to make clear is that sometimes when we do this research, we describe, you know, these prenatal stressors as like programming offspring health in a way mm -hmm. that's irreversible. Um, and I think that is can be damagizing and pathologizing. And, you know, human bodies are sensitive to the environment beyond just the prenatal period. Right. So I, I think what will be interesting to see is when and how and in what way like life becomes normal again. And maybe if there's differences in the timing of that normalcy how that can actually influence the long-term trajectories, right? Because again, the sensitive period of development isn't only pregnancy. Mm. Um, so it's my, you know, I hope from like a population health perspective that things will get better and that, um, 
you know, the long-term impacts of this will not be incredibly severe, even if we we're able to find some modest associations at like a population level. Um, if we're talking about individuals, I don't want it to come off as like they're doomed to disaster. Oh, I end, I think that's a really important point. Let's stick with that for a second, because I mean, if, what I hear you saying is that, you know, if you look at this from a public health, a sort of broader public health perspective, yeah, there may be associations and it may be difficult for some individuals, but there's still the broader public health perspective to take. Mm-hmm. Um, there's supports that can be provided just because mm-hmm. a person experiences stress. It doesn't mean that they have to experience that stress alone. That seems to be one of the tensions throughout COVID-19 is we're often very good, I think, in the United States at talking about individual health. Mm. I don't know how good we are. We're better at it <laughs> than at talking about the population level. And and if there's a population level impact, then that there are policy remedies for that. I mean, mm. there's ways to take that on board and say, okay, let's change that. Yeah, and, and I think that if we you know come to the point where we think that there's this whole cohort of people who have had to go through some really difficult things and pregnancy and the postpartum, what can we do to support them now, right? Like even more um, to try and make sure that we improve environments in order to avoid the development of these adverse outcomes. Like there are still things that we can do. Um, and so doing what, what we can. Of, yeah, what are some yeah. Of those, what are some of those things? Uh, so, I mean, I think a lot of it is, well, I think about the recent um, Biden administration announcements supporting um, child care and children access. So, you know, in the U.S., we have taken this view that children are, in, you know, parents' responsibility. And then at five, <laughs> from five to 18, there's a public taking care of them in the form of school. But it's really strange when you think about it that before five, there's nothing. Um, that's certainly not the case cross-culturally. And so policies that actually promote access to, you know, daycare and early childhood education um, would be really helpful. Um, In general, the whole maternity care system is expensive (laughs) and clunky and is not really patient centered. Um, I mean, this is kind of a topic we haven't even really touched on yet in this call, but the context of maternity care in this country is such that you know, we view giving birth in the hospital as completely normalized, right? So 97% of births occur in the hospital. But 100 years ago, it was, you know, 1900, it would have been in the single digits, right? So there's been a really rapid change um, in terms of birth setting, even though we think about hospitals as the natural place to give birth. Um, In the US, the vast majority of births are attended by obstetricians, um, whereas other places in Western Europe, for example, you know, many countries, 75% of births are attended by midwives. Um, and there's differences in terms of models of care between obstetricians and midwives um, that that would suggest that have been argued to be more consistent with promoting maternal mental well-being and, and have actually been associated with better birth outcomes for people who have low-risk pregnancies. Um, so this the stress in that in the system pre-COVID, yes. even you're describing expensive. Um, and the hospital has become the, the default. Do you think that is going to continue? Do you see any indications through the pandemic? Any 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 changes there? I mean, people are rethinking. I mean, I've talked to people on COVID calls who've talked about the sort of radical changes they foresee coming in medicine, the research, but also just the way medicine is delivered. Is maternal care is also wrapped up in that, you think? Yeah, I do, actually. So again, there's been this predominant assumption within our society that hospitals are the place you give birth. And the pandemic all of a sudden caused a lot of people to rethink that for the first time on a much broader scale to the extent that people thought, well, I don't want to go to the hospital. That's where all the COVID patients are. right? I don't want to catch COVID at the hospital. What are my other options? And when people explore those options, they realize that there's not that many because there's lots of structural factors that inhibit access to out-of-hospital community birth. Um, So the other places to give birth are in freestanding birthing centers, which um, exist, but they don't actually even exist in all 50 states. Um, And uh, also home births, which um, can be difficult to access as well. They're not covered by insurance. They can only be attended by midwives. And so anyways, with the pandemic, you saw a lot of people trying to explore these community birth options for the first time. Uh, within our sample, we see this. Um, individuals who were, went to those community births oftentimes were very satisfied with it. 
And we actually have a paper that's about to come out in Frontiers um, that where we asked our participants about how the pandemic is impacting their future maternity care preferences. So if you were to become pregnant again, where would you give birth? And we found that about 6% of our participants said that if they became pregnant again, they would now give birth outside of a hospital, which again, if you think back, it's only 3% of people give birth out of hospital in the first place. Um, so again, suggesting that the pandemic may be shifting some of these cultural norms about where we should be giving birth in the first place. And do you think that's connected with uh, perception of um, scarcity of hospital services with the possibility that, I mean, it's hard for me to understand. I mean, it's such a complicated array of, of risks that we now associated with hospitals, not everywhere, I should say, but in the United States and the way the pandemic, as you mentioned, has been handled, not in a national way, sometimes not even in a state way, but wildly diverse experiences. So what do you think is driving that increase in interest in moving away from the hospital for birth? Yeah, so I think that, you know, initially, it, for a lot of these people, it was about getting away from sites of infection. Um, but for those who experienced it or those who have learned about it more now, there was a trend towards kind of a preference for the models of care associated with those spaces. So this kind of model of person-centered care where you have someone who you get, have a relationship with and you get to know over the course of your pregnancy and they're the one that's with you throughout your labor and deliver your baby as opposed to in many hospitals where you might see a different provider at every appointment when it comes time to actually give birth, you don't know who's going to be there when you, you know, who's going to be on call when you go into labor. And then when you do go into labor, you've got all these different people coming into your room, you know, sticking their fingers inside you and watching you. And so you don't have that emotional support, which is fundamental for having feeling safe and secure in childbirth, which, you know, from an evolutionary perspective is essential, right? So humans have um, obligate care across cultures everywhere humans have assisted childbirth which is not something you see in other species um, and so the role of that person is to provide not only like the physical support but emotional support and so that lack of emotional support is something that happens unfortunately in a lot of hospitals and is something that people really crave just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking today with Zaneda Thayer about maternal care and the pandemic. And you can get your calls in, uh, get your questions in to COVID calls in the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up uh, on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. A couple more aspects I wanted to come back to, just things you had mentioned earlier, and then I, I know you've written a little bit about too. Um, perception that, maybe it's reality, that um, children would be taken away from mothers mm -hmm. For a quarantine period after giving birth. Are there documented cases of that out there this year? Yes, there Last are. Year? Yeah. Yes. Really? In 2020, there were children who were and and the language. So we actually asked our participants about this as well. So I read I'd read about this in news stories. So we asked about it in our survey. And there were people who were separated from their infants at birth in our sample. And one of the things I asked participants about was whether they felt like they had a choice or not. Because in the official, you know, CDC recommendations about separating the infant away from the mother if she tests positive for COVID, it was um, recommended. It, it was it was set. It was worded in such a way that the provider was supposed to inform the patient that this was the recommended course of action. But of course, as a patient, you have a right to make a decision about your medical care, right? So technically, you could refuse that. So we'd asked our participants if they felt like it was um, presented to them as a choice or something that they felt they had to do. And our participants all said that if they felt like it was something that they had to do. So it was not presented to them as a choice. I mean, even the perception that that could be a possibility must be an enormous stressor. Yes, absolutely. And again, like the U.S. guidelines for this and recommendations were um, disconnected from the WHO guidelines, which said that um, you know, keeping moms and babies together is extremely important for breastfeeding. So you, and among many other things, right? Um, and so keeping moms and babies together should always be a priority. Um, and there was no evidence to suggest vertical transmission from mom to baby of COVID. And, you know, mom should just be masked and, and wash her hands and still be together. So it was really tragic. 
I mean, and it brings up so many sort of grim resonances with the immigration policies of the previous administration. And, and this may be outside the scope of your study, but I'm also thinking about um, the stories I've read about um, women who are in carceral settings or women who are immigrants, documented or undocumented, or women who are um, pregnant and then they find themselves part of essential worker groups in the meatpacking industry where they literally have to they have to go to work. They're basically commanded to go to work or they lose their lose their jobs. How do we make sense of the the stress on on those populations of, of pregnant women? Yeah, so I mean, respect to some of your like incarcerated women, for example, there's all sorts of inhumane um, characteristics of like how women who are incarcerated have to give birth and these regulations vary by state but in some states women have to be shackled like while in labor so that's like a whole thing um yeah there's the immigration detention centers and children being separated from parents which is extremely problematic on a lot of levels <laughs> um and in, in terms of your last point about um, people who have to work right essential workers um, you know, we looked at this in our study as well. We asked people if they were working outside the home and um, and we and people expressed a lot of stress about this. We also asked about whether the pandemic was affecting their work plans and how long they planned to work in pregnancy. And we saw that this was a huge source of stress for people because, you know, a lot of them felt like they had to choose between their health and their income. Right. Which was necessary. And it just caused a huge psychological burden for these people because they didn't feel like they had a choice and they had to continue to expose themselves and their you know, unborn baby. Do children, um, we've talked about mothers and, and babies, but what about other children in the household? Do they also um, sense in, in some ways the stress that a mother is going through, a pregnant mother is, is going through, any connections there? They're not directly mother to, well, it would be mother to child, but not, not through the placenta, as we've been discussing earlier. But what? how do you think about that sort of complicated relationship, too? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, so, you know, I've talked a lot about these prenatal in utero sort of effects. I should also mention that breastfeeding is another um, opportunity for maternal biology to directly influence baby's development vis-a-vis -vis stress hormones and other hormones and factors present in breast milk that the baby gets. Um, but then another important aspect is maternal behavior. So there's these really interesting studies that talk about how something as simple as how often you stroke your baby's head. <laughs> um, but then also you can imagine like how you're interacting with your child, how you're communicating with your child, all of those things are going to be affected by things like depression or PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And so if parents are suffering mentally, it's going to affect their children through the ways they interact with their kids. Um, not, not to anyone's fault, right? This is just why we need to do whatever, everything we can to try and support um, parents and their children. I, would do, I want to reference the work of uh, Lori Peak and Alice Fothergill, who among um, many others have done disaster research, really um, doing longitudinal studies of children um, who lived through disasters. And they wrote a tremendous um, book called Children of Katrina. Um, mm. And I think they're working on a COVID project as well. And one of the things I'm always impressed by when I talk with them, when I read their work, um, and others who take these kind of approaches, back to what we were discussing earlier, um, is the kind of um, trust and relationship that builds up between the researcher and that cohort. And I wanted to ask you about that um, as you're looking forward. I mean, you're early in your research career. I mean, is this, you're going to be working on with this population, do you think, for, for quite a time? And how do you think that's going to affect you? Yeah, that's a good, good question. So I certainly hope to be working on this for a long time. Um, I have to say this is my first online study. <laughs> um, you know, I'm an anthropologist, so normally I like to go places and talk to people and build rapport. And so in some ways, the online survey has been challenging because I haven't gotten to see my participants face to face yet. Right. We did provide a lot of opportunities for um, participants to provide open ended responses. Uh, and talk about their experiences that way. So in, in that sense, it's been amazing to be able to hear these, um, you know, women's voices, right? And like read about their individual experiences. 
that they have so graciously shared with us. But I am hoping, you know, in subsequent rounds that we're going to be able to do more interviews, even if it's just over Zoom <laughs> for now. Um, but we have tried to do a lot of outreach and dissemination as part of our study in order to give back and communicate with our participants. So in the fall, we put together a booklet uh, that we shared with all of our participants, summarizing all the papers that we've published today and just sharing some fun facts and stats from the sample. Um, we've also um, created infographics for each of the studies that we've published so far that we share. Um, we keep up to date on our website so that they're, you know, we can translate the findings hopefully into more easy to understand digestible language. Um, and so we're working on another maternal booklet next term. And so we're trying to stay, you know, engaged and um, disseminate and give back to our participants. So even though we can't see them face to face, hopefully they know that we appreciate them and that, you know, um, we want to keep the communication lines open. Let's stay with this for a second, because I, I really I like what you said. And I want to I want to value what you said, which is that you're an anthropologist. And you kind of you didn't. I'll say the quiet part out loud. Um, this is not necessarily what you signed up for as an anthropologist, <laughs> is it? No. <laughs> I mean, you want to be in the field. Yeah, I want to be like in people's homes, like, you know, yeah. talking to them, like sitting around the kitchen table and Well, because you their get stories. data that way. I mean, the, an anthropologist is trained to, to have a conversation with a person, but be drawing information from everything in the space. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, I think that Obviously, in COVID, we haven't been able to do that, right? So I've had to pivot and figure out how to use my skills differently. But, you know, I'm hoping to be able to do more of that in the future. And certainly, you know, even if I were to start a retrospective study anytime in the next few years where I generate a new cohort and talk to people, for better or worse, this pandemic has had a substantial enough effect that I think I can ask about specific things that have happened to people and have confidence that they're being recalled with like, you know, a high accuracy. So if I asked about if someone's financial situation was impacted by the pandemic, you know, even five years down, hopefully they can still give me a relatively accurate assessment about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's always a new adventure. What do you think online study design is now going to become requirement for anthropological training? Ooh, you know, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I had three students, undergrads, who were about to go to the field um, last year. So we were like working on their human subjects approvals. Mm -hmm. And when COVID hit, two of them, you know, um, decided that was it. They, you know, they're like overwhelmed and didn't want to try and shift. But one of them shifted and we did her study online. She was originally going to go to, um, Peru and Japan, and then we did all these remote surveys instead, and 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 interviews instead. And now I'm designing some other studies with undergrads, and we're doing all online surveys. <laughs> and so, yeah, I find myself training students in an area that I never received training in. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I think there's some value to internet surveys and um, to Zoom interviews, and in that we can reach more people like mm -hmm. quickly. And I can access people like geographically who would be more difficult to access. But I still think there's something about face to face that will never die, you know. So I do think that maybe this will become an, another, you know, tool in our toolkit that we can certainly improve the methods on, right, and do better. And that's a good thing to learn. But um, I'd like to think that that will not certainly not replace our traditional bread and butter data collection methods. And I think in terms of, um, you know, we were talking about earlier disasters uh, like the 1918 pandemic, mm -hmm. the flu pandemic, or let's say World War II, um, in which we might have seen sort of some similar impacts, a kind of a long delay, a slow disaster. Um, with significant stress over a pretty long period of time for vulnerable populations, for pregnant uh, mothers, their children, whatever group we might be looking at. But in those cases, we didn't have the capacity. I mean, those are that's just data that you, you couldn't get mm. because people couldn't get out and get that data. Mm -hmm. um, this is different. As you said, you can reach broader parts of the world, um, populations maybe you couldn't get to before. You still have the digital divide, certainly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's literally building it as we go, right? 
Yeah, definitely. So in that sense, it's exciting, the, the possibilities to think through. But I also think that, you know, we have to think through how do we do this is what good is possible, right? Like, what are the ways that we can do to improve these methods? And um, I can tell you that looking back on my questionnaire, I wish that I had more than like a week to write it. Because <laughs> there's all sorts of questions I would have asked yeah. differently. Um, but yeah, it's Why still exciting that? to me. The urgency of the, of the moment and the perishability of the, of the data. Yeah, that was the impetus. Um, so, you know, when the pandemic hit, I was actually in New Zealand. I'm um, doing field work <laughs> oh, well, you were and, fo there. and foolishly left um, yeah, and came back. There. I know. What was I thinking? But you can't go back. No. I hope you got yeah. everything you needed. And I was supposed to be there right now. I have a house rented. Oh, <laughs> supposed no. to be there. Yeah. Um, it's been put off a year. So hopefully I can get in then. A year. A year will do uh, it. Yeah. In any case, I came back and was just concerned about, you know, what was happening. And a postdoc I was working with, Dr. Teresa Gildner, um, reached out to me and she's like, you know, do you think we should do something? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we should. And so we just put it together and um, everything was just happening fast. So we wanted to, and we didn't know how long it was going to last, right? We all thought that the pandemic was going to be over in two months. So we had to collect our data now. <laughs> right. And just a reminder to folks you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Zenaida Thayer today. It, let's touch on a different subject here. We have a few minutes left, and I, you've mentioned um, the uniqueness of the American experience, both pre-pandemic and through the pandemic, in terms of the way the medical system, the way that women interact with the medical system through childbirth and after. Um, what are other countries that you're interested in in this in this regard? What other countries offer different models? before and through the pandemic? Yeah, so New Zealand is the place where I do my field work primarily. Um, so I started my first birth cohort there in 2010, um, where I recruited a group of pregnant women and asked about their stress and um, looked at their stress hormones and their baby stress hormones after birth. So in New Zealand, the vast majority of births are attended by midwives. I don't wanna misquote the statistics, so I won't cite one specifically, um, but individuals, uh, prenatal care is completely covered by the government. So all of your prenatal care appointments, labor and delivery, it's completely free, right? And covered by nationalized insurance. So that financial barrier and like concern and cost that a lot of American women feel is just not an issue. Um, people are also able to pick between an obstetrician or a midwife, and then you can give birth at home in a birth center or at a hospital. And everything's completely covered and it's completely your choice. Um, and their prevalence of out-of-hospital births are also much higher. And so, you know, it's about having choice, right? Some people really want to give birth in the hospital, and that's fine. And I don't mean to take that away from them at all, right? For some people, the thought of not giving birth at a hospital is terrifying. Um, but I think what's important is for people to understand that they have choice or that they should have choice so that people can decide what model of care is most consistent with what they want for their experience. What are some of the other, uh, you're focusing on New Zealand, are there some other, um, is anybody doing it worse? I mean, maybe there's other there's examples <laughs> to look at where the stress is even higher. It's hard for me to imagine that place, but maybe there is one. Yeah, I mean, there are many parts of the world where people have inadequate access to prenatal care, right? right. Um, and so I think that would be a worse situation. You know, one metric we use to look at this sometimes is cesarean section rate. So, um, you know, WHO recommends that 10 to 15 percent of cesareans are likely to be medically indicated, meaning that that's like all else being equal. That's like about how many we would expect to see in a population in the U.S., for example, it's over 30 percent of births are now via cesarean. Right. So we're two to three times more than what we would expect is probably biologically indicated. Um, but in some parts of the world, you know, it's one to five percent, right, <laughs> or you're lower because people don't have access to mm -hmm. um, prenatal care and um, proper medical care and, and labor delivery. So I guess it, it could certainly be worse in that way. One other thing I was sort of curious about is the birth rate itself through the pandemic. You seen any trends there? It might, might be too early 
to say, are, are we in the United States or other parts of the world sort of on pace with what you would expect with birth rate? Or are there some COVID effects that are observable? Yeah, so I haven't seen any strong data that have come out yet. I've seen projections about this. So it's been projected that there will be a decrease in births associated with the pandemic. And apparently that's associated with other sorts of natural disasters where there's oftentimes a decrease in births and then a gradual increase and maybe even a baby boom, <laughs> you know, completely like qualitatively. Um, I've, I've heard people go both directions, right? So a lot of people who have older children, other children, for example, who are completely tapped out <laughs> and are like, I cannot have a child right now. And this might lead to greater birth spacing because of that. Um, but then other folks for whom, uh, you know, if you're in a, if you're one of the lucky people who are in a situation where you get to work from home, all right, and have secure employment, you know, maybe this is an okay time to get pregnant and have a baby. Um, so I think it'll depend a lot. I think there's going to be a lot of heterogeneity in terms of people's individual circumstance and how that affects fertility decisions. And that's fascinating to me. And also to consider that there could be millions of women who are going to have a, a COVID-19 birth experience and then another, a non-COVID-19 mm -hmm. experience. And so you're going to have um, just a lot of variability out there in terms of people's interaction with giving birth, but also the health system mm -hmm. too. Yeah, actually, we asked about this in the reverse direction. So among participants who had already given birth, we asked about whether they perceived, uh, whether they'd had a baby prior to COVID, whether they perceived their COVID birth experience to be, you know, more or less or similarly stressful um, because of COVID. And uh, I can't remember the stat off the top of my head, but the majority of women um, did say that they thought that this COVID birth was more was a more stressful experience um, because of the pandemic. So consistent with all the stuff we've been talking about already. Have you been seeing uh, uh, sort of innovation, creativity in terms of building online networks and mutual aid for pregnant mothers? And and I asked that question with the realization also that building a network is not like it's time consuming and it mm -hmm. adds a stress in itself, particularly people who maybe have social anxiety, you know, to then have to try to build your own support network in the middle of a disaster is also labor that should be considered. But be that as it may, I'm curious about that as a cultural phenomenon. Are you seeing it? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, when the pandemic was first happening and we were first launching our survey, um, we found this pregnant during COVID Facebook group that had 10,000 people. No kidding. And so individuals were sharing their different stories and experiences and it was a clear you know, system of support that had been generated. And I think there were lots of other groups like that that popped up. Um, you know, I think that it's also important to keep in mind structural factors that inhibit access to those sorts of support networks, right? So you mentioned digital divide already, but also just, again, having the time to be able to be on Facebook yeah. and posting and talking to people. Unfortunately, that's not a luxury everyone has, right? Particularly if you're working jobs and caring for other kids. And so, um, you know, I think that those inequalities um, that already exist are probably just exacerbated even more by the pandemic because a lot of people aren't able to form those spontaneous, you know, online connections. Just want to remind folks that you've been listening to COVID calls and been talking today with Zaneda Thayer, who's the uh, co-creator of the COVID-19 and Reproductive Effects, the CARE study. Let me give you a second to say something about your, your colleagues and people in your team that you've been working with. Yeah, thanks. So um, as I mentioned, I launched the study with Dr. Teresa Gildner, who was a postdoc with me at Dartmouth, and she now just started an assistant professor position at WashU in anthropology. Um, so she's fabulous. And then we have a whole team of research assistants who've been working with this entire time. So four Dartmouth undergraduates um, that we meet with weekly, um, and they've been helping with all aspects of the study, especially doing a lot of the heavy lifting with dissemination. So they're the ones who put together the booklet and have been helping us with the infographics. Um, we have a new undergrad from um, WashU that's helping us now as well. And then another postdoc I'm working with, Dr. Gloria Siwize, um, who's also assisting on the project. So we have a fabulous team and that's been nice to be able to form community um, through working on this project with them. Have the team dynamics been different in any way than you might have expected because of the, the Zoom effect? You know, what's interesting is that I've been working closely and meeting weekly with these people since April. And with the exception of um, Teresa and Glorious, the postdocs, I haven't actually met any of the undergrads in person. That's amazing. So many people <laughs> and, have and they're even, 
Yeah, and some of them are just projects. Like the rest of their career will be shaped by this project, and you've never physically met them. I know we've we've talked about Amazing. that a lot. <laughs> They're like, this is like defining, you know, helping to define my college experience in terms of like the substantial research project, and we haven't met in person. <laughs> Hopefully, we do. Um, but yeah, so that's been a weird aspect. But we try to stay connected. We send everyone like hot chocolate uh, at the end of the fall term and had a hot chocolate party together. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so, you know, doing our best to keep it together. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. I want to thank my guest today, Zaneda Thayer, for just a wonderful conversation for the work that you're doing. Um, keep it up. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It was a really fun conversation. Stay healthy, everybody, and we will see you tomorrow at 5 o'clock Eastern time.